2: The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor, Foreign in London. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, DC.
3: I'm Alona Ferber, Special Projects Editor in London.
4: It's Thursday, the second of February. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, each Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs.
3: Last week, a deadly Israeli army raid in the West Bank city of Janine and a shooting attack in East Jerusalem capped off one of the bloodiest months in Israel and the occupied territories outside of a full-scale war in years.
5: Like us, is a stalwart believer in the negotiated two-state solution. Um, the only path to a lasting resolution of the conflict and critically equal measures of democracy, opportunity, and dignity for Israelis and Palestinians.
4: We discuss what the sharp rise in violence means for Netanyahu's new government and its relationship with allies abroad.
2: Then we discuss a long-running but increasingly critical problem, the global aging crisis. We
4: also take a listener's question on how seriously we should take Boris Johnson's claims that Putin threatened him with a missile.
5: You know, he, he sort of, he threatened me at one point and said, you know, uh, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but uh, with a missile, it would only take a minute or something like that, you know. Uh, yeah, Johnny.
4: Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken touched down in Israel this week against a backdrop of escalating violence. Last week, an Israeli army raid on the West Bank city of Jenin left nine Palestinians dead, the single deadliest day in the territory in years. The next day, a gunman killed seven people outside a synagogue in a Jewish area of East Jerusalem before he was killed by police. The attack was also one of the deadliest in the city in more than a decade. This sharp rise in violence has taken place just weeks after Benjamin Netanyahu's new far-right government has come into power. Alona as our very welcome guest today, I wanted to start with you to give us the context and background of
3: this new government in Israel. The government is fairly new. It was sworn in in December, just before the end of the year. And this was a government that's come out of the fifth Israeli election in less than four years. It's an unprecedentedly religious and right-wing government. So it's the most far-right religious governing coalition you could have. And part of the reason that that has happened is because a current Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, when he was... so, I mean, just it's important to explain here that Israel has a proportional representation system. So when a party or a politician is trying to cobble together a coalition, they need a majority of 61. There are 120 MKs in the Knesset. And when Benjamin Netanyahu was doing his horse race wrangling to get together the coalition, usually he would have different people to go to and leverage to negotiate who joins, what they get in, in their coalition agreements. But this time, Netanyahu, who is still on trial for separate charges of bribery, Breach of trust and fraud, and is desperate to stay out of jail. Although he completely denies this has anything to do with anything that he's doing, he was really with his back up against the wall and didn't really have many coalition partners to choose from. So he ended up with the two ultra orthodox parties and a slate of very far right Jewish parties who were able to request anything they wanted, knowing that he really needed them in government. So that's the government that we've got in place today. And since in the first kind of few weeks of that government, um, the big headlines that have come out of the country are that there are protests all the time because the new government is trying to overhaul the judicial system to stamp out what they call judicial activism. And our a party is trying to make changes that would basically... Uh, give the government an automatic veto and override through the Knesset of Supreme Court decisions. So um, opponents to that say that it's going to do real damage to Israeli democracy, the very fragile democracy that it is already. And the violence that we've seen since the raid in Janine that you mentioned in the opening, the raid was had the highest death toll of a single operation recorded by the UN Since it began recording stuff in 2005, it's part of an ongoing Israeli operation against Palestinian factions in that part of the West Bank. And it was launched after a wave of Palestinian attacks last spring. And it was followed by rockets from Gaza and IF strikes. So you can see the cycle of violence starting again. And it's really important to understand that, that when that and the attack in Jerusalem, which is also one of the deadliest for years. Seven people died in that attack in East Jerusalem. And the following day, a 13-year-old boy attacked two people. So you can see that the kind of the cycle of violence is really horrendous. But that's happened. You know, you've, you've had kind of um, a lot of Palestinians dying in the West Bank this year and last year and kind of violence continuing. So this is, I guess it's important to understand that this is part of a kind of continued cycle of violence and the new government, part of the context that's important to understand is that one of the most extreme members of the government, that's, he's called Itamar Ben-Gvir, and he leads a party called Jewish Power. He is now the Minister for National Security. He's in charge of the police. He's in charge of the border police. And you wonder when you see the responses, for example, after the attack in Jerusalem of the synagogue, which was a horrendous attack, but Israel detained 42 people after that attack. And you do wonder how much the far right sort of influence of, of the party, the head of that that ministry is having on the fact that the government isn't really calming the flames, particularly. Netanyahu, you know, I think is quite a cautious leader in, on that sense. He doesn't jump into kind of war or attack, but he isn't necessarily able to control his coalition partners very easily now because of that context I explained around forming the coalition. So yes, you've got a kind of a really volatile situation with a government that is not particularly no one who's looking at it from the side is filled with confidence about the government being, you know, wanting to calm the flames or try to bring about peace in any way, I think, at this point.
4: So you haven't, there's been no signs that there's been attempts to de-escalate the situation in
3: any way I would say no. In fact, something that the Is- Israel's liberal daily, Haaretz, its editorial today, focuses on a bill that passed the first of three Knesset votes on Monday by a margin of 89 to 8. And that's a bill that would strip Israelis of their citizenship if they commit acts of terrorism and receive money from the Palestinian Authority. If you think if you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel, the government wants to pass a law to basically say that your citizenship is conditional on something. And we're talking about citizens, people who are part of the state. They were born there. They grew up there. And there's already a citizenship and entry to Israel law, which prevents Palestinian citizens from living in Israel with their non-Israeli spouses. And the nation state law, which is something that came in a few years ago, basically makes Palestinian citizens second-class citizens. So, you know, that sort of thing doesn't sound like it's calming flames in any way. One of Ben first, and this is preceding the raid and the attack... One of Itamar Ben-Gvir's first acts as the national security minister was to tell the police to ban Palestinian flags from public places, even though they're not actually illegal in, in, under Israeli law. And even the Jerusalem Post, which is a very right-wing paper, said, hey, that's a step too far. Let people wave the flag for freedom of speech reasons. And he's also told the police to, be, to crack down on protesters who, who are out all the time protesting against the reforms governments trying to push through. Anthony Blinken was in, in Israel, of course, as we all know, and there's calls from him and from leaders around the world for calm on both sides. He said he he's concerned about the trajectory for the two-state solution. And, you know, Netanyahu was able to kind of, I think, it was very much water off a duck's back for him. He's so good at handling that kind of situation and so good at communicating about his line is, yes, yes, okay, but actually look at the Abraham Accords. We'll get to a with the Palestinians later, which does seem pretty disingenuous, doesn't it? But I guess yeah, the I mean- analysis of it.
4: Obviously, Netanyahu, he's been here before. He's very skilled at diplomacy with the Americans. I'm just wondering, because now we're seeing signs even from quite pro-Israel U.S. politicians that seem to be quite concerned with the illiberal tactics of the new government and they're quite wary of continuing to support a country that is going quite openly and blatantly in such a direction. Even support for Israel in the U.S. is pretty secure, but they're openly starting to question some of these tactics. Um, Is there any kind of sense that there's concern from the government that this could be, that their moves to the right could be disruptive to their allies abroad?
3: I think there's always going to be concern. You know, Blinken is speaking in Israel. He gave a press conference at the end of his visit and he talked about speaking frankly and respectfully for friends, holding ourselves to mutual standards. He said things that sounded like he was concerned about the impact of the judicial stuff and he mentioned sort of civil society in fact, he he met with civil society groups in Israel, which I think is pretty unusual for a visit from a Secretary of State in the US. So it sounds like he was trying to really signal hey, of course we're we're allies and Iran and all the stuff that we're thinking about together and the Abraham Accords, but this stuff might be going a little bit too far. But you know, the Americans are so careful with what they do say to to Israel. He gave a kind of list of things that America would kind of continue to oppose that could get in the way of peace. So he talked about settlement expansion, illegal outposts being legalized. He talked about any moves to annex the West Bank. And he talked about demolitions and evictions and incitement to violence. He, he mentioned a lot of things between that and that actually impacting the relationship. It's kind of a picture. And Netanyahu, he gave a, an interview to CNN yesterday, a very Broad interview where he just repeated his same lines. You know, when he's asked, Are these judicial reforms anything to do with you staying out of jail? No, of course they aren't. This is all about upholding Israeli democracy and going against judicial activism. And he's very good at communicating on this stuff and good at highlighting the joint interests on Abraham Accords and Iran and sounding very polished and, and a global statesman. I'm sure for Netanyahu, he's wary. His new coalition partners are hard to control and unpredictable, and he doesn't have as much control over them as he would like. And I'm sure he is worried about how he handles his relationships with the state, with Russia, you know, how will these slightly unpredictable people, some people have called them, and it's called the kind of pyromaniac sort of coalition partners because they're so volatile and unpredictable, how they will af- affect it. And for Netanyahu, Trump and him were best friends and he, that relationship was really secure for many years. So I'm sure he's he's aware of how little he can limit these partners and he, he's watching how that will impact the relationship. He's planning a trip to the US pretty soon, so he clearly wants to keep that relationship on side. And one of the things that's a problem for him as well is the U.S. Jewish population is the biggest in the world outside of Israel. The coalition government has Orthodox Jewish politicians who are not particularly welcoming of different kinds of Jews, of reformed Jews. And, that you know, in America, the reformed Jewish population is huge. And so he's got lots of areas where quite niche and kind of Jewish interest areas, which some listeners who aren't Jewish might not even be aware of, where there are potential risks to the relationship. So he's got a lot to keep his eye on at the moment.
2: Can I ask a very blunt question? Hearing you talk about some of these paramaniac partners, are there elements within the new government that actively want this violence and want conflict? Could there be a sense that this is a time when the Palestinians have less international support? There are divisions within the leadership. Are there elements of Netanyahu's government who would actually welcome a new conflict?
3: That's a really interesting question. I'm not sure that they would welcome exactly a new conflict. I'm not sure they welcome the upheaval and the violence. But that's not to say that their kind of their vision for what Israel could be is hard to reconcile with any kind of peace. And the place they see for Palestinians within that vision is not a kind of one exactly of peaceful. Coexistence. You've got people in that coalition, and Betel Smotrich, who leads another one of the big parties, Religious Zionism. It's, it's out. It's out there on the internet. He's written about his sort of vision for the future and how he would fix things, and it includes you transferring populations out, getting rid of disloyal citizens, moving them out of the country. All sorts of things that that are about sort of Jewish hegemony and a kind of Jewish supremacy in those areas. You've, you know, they are far right, Jewish supremacist, extreme ideologues. So. I don't think that they're looking for a fight in that sense, but others might disagree with me. But I think they're not exactly looking for peace either, if that makes sense. And I don't think, you know, Sa- Itamar Ben-Gvir, who I mentioned, he's like the winner of this, the last election. He was very popular. He got a lot of votes from younger Israelis who moved polling more to the right. And a lot of Israelis are looking into saying he will bring security back. We're sick of the violence and the instability. This guy will, will fix things. They see themselves as sort of guardians who kind of, you know, bring back order and keep the enemy at bay or something rather than looking for a conflict I think
4: thanks so much Ilona for joining us today put this all into context as you said it's early days of the government so I'm sure it's a subject we'll be returning to and you will be joining us again thank you so much now we turn our attention to a AIDS old problem or an old age problem On the 23rd of January, Japan's Prime Minister, Kishida Fumio, warned that the country's falling birth rates were reaching crisis points that could soon see the nation struggle to maintain its basic societal functions. But Japan isn't alone. Nations across the world, including China, the US, the UK, and Italy, are all dealing with rapidly aging societies, which could have terrible consequences. Shrinking workforces, stalled growth... Huge portions of society in need of care with no means to fund it. Katie, you wrote about this very subject this week, so I wanted to start with you. Why don't we've known that Japan has an aging society for some time now? What is it that's actually reached the crisis point in Japan?
2: Yeah, your pun is absolutely forgiven because this is an age old problem. You know, like I remember going to Japan on a reporting trip in in 2017 to do a story on Japan's aging crisis. So this is not a new issue. The difference and why I think Kashida is putting this in such blunt terms now, really describing this openly as a an existential. Threat to Japanese society, and he's talking about this now being a now or never moment to tackle this, is that it's happening more rapidly than even the Japanese government had predicted. So last year, you saw births in Japan drop below 800,000 for the first time, which was something they had expected to happen in eight years' time. So this is happening more rapidly than had been expected. And the figures that you're now looking at are close to a third of the population aged 65 or over. So you have this kind of perfect storm of a rising cost of social security programs like pensions and medical care at the exact same time that the proportion of working age people who are paying into these programs is falling. So it is a very serious problem and it's happening much more rapidly than the government had expected. And you're right to point out that this is not just happening in Japan. You know, I think one of the things, particularly for developed advanced economies to look at is the trajectory that Japan is now on, potentially being the future for many other countries around the world, including the UK, including the US, including countries like South Korea, which last year broke its own record for the world's lowest fertility rate. And even countries that we have often not put in this category, such as China, um, long the world's most populous country last year reported its first population decline in just over six decades. The last time China's population officially fell was in 1960 to 61, which was towards the end of uh, China's Great Famine. So this is a serious problem, which has global aspects to it. There are specific factors within each of these countries, but there are also commonalities. And this, the sort of stat- statistics that you're looking at for the world in general are by 2030, one in six people will be aged 60 or over. By 2050, that number will be more than one in five. And one thing to note is that 80% of that population will be living in low and middle income countries. So the way that this has been talked about is the danger of so many of these countries, and including major countries such as China, growing old before they grow rich. So having an aging population without necessarily the resources to, to care and provide for that population. Alona, you and I are in London, so we're in the
4: UK, and already we're seeing the problems with an aging society, even for a relatively wealthy country, the NHS is on its knees, and with an ever you know aging population that is increasingly reliant on the NHS, but without younger people to continue funding, it, it's going to continue to just be unless it's radically addressed and more funding is put into it and a new way of approaching it is handled. That it's going to be an increasing problem that's going to be. A catastrophe. I don't want to sound dramatic, but we're at such a crisis point right now. And when you were talking about the speed with which aging is happening, and within ten years we're going to see some kind of leap, then it's just quite alarming. And then we look at it on a global scale. Something that was in your piece, Katie, that I thought was really interesting is that although there's all of these different countries dealing with this. There are some commonalities of why the birth rate is plummeting in all of them and how countries are not (laughs) relying on what you would think would be the most obvious kind of solutions to encourage people to have more children.
2: Yeah, so China took a particularly egregious approach to population control in the previous century and actually until very recently. The one-child policy in China wasn't in place until 2015. So some countries have specific factors that have exacerbated this issue, you know, that policy in China then led to a huge uh, gender imbalance with many more boys being born than girls, and you're continuing to see the consequences of that in the population. But there are commonalities across all of these very different societies in terms of, you know, very simple things. The rising cost of childcare and education. It, it, it is very expensive um, to afford um, childcare. For many families, that is a serious factor in deciding whether they can have a larger family or not, is whether they can afford daycare, or childcare for those children. The rising cost of living in general at a time when we are hearing bad news after bad news about the economy, urging young families to have more children in in that economic environment. It's not particularly surprising um, that that isn't working. Lack of support for working parents, particularly women, and the unequal burden on on women. Lack of access to affordable health care. These are deep structural issues and Without tackling those really fundamental societal and economic inequalities, the kind of incentives that you're seeing, the South Korean government, I think everyone in the piece has estimated to have spent $200 billion over the last 16 years in an attempt to tackle this without really results, because offering parents a financial incentive for having children or offering small support towards childcare and towards education doesn't address these fundamental issues. So without those major efforts to tackle the real reasons that that families decide to not have more children, that, that so many more would-be parents decide not to or decide to have one or two children rather than more. And really, these are just kind of Band-Aids. So these approaches to the problem have consistently not worked. So it is that the Japanese Prime Minister is putting this in these very shrill now or never terms, But without taking a different approach, then it's going to just be more of the same result. It's going to be never. It's sort of shouting into the wind, but not really changing anything. So I think this is an issue, we were talking before this recording, that this is, for some people, I guess a little bit on the scale of climate change, where you understand this is a global issue, but the scale of the changes that are needed seems so overwhelming that it is very difficult to generate momentum and particularly political will to tackle this and to take to take serious action. So unfortunately, in five years time, we may all be back here again, talking about the even more urgent scale of, of global aging crisis. And we'll all be on the podcast till we're 90 years old, because by then we'll all be working <laughs>
3: in, well into
2: our old age. Oh my goodness, <laughs> we'll never retire. Anybody,
3: it sounds very scary. And like the prospect of us working till we're 90 is real. But is there anybody who's saying, hang on, actually, this is an opportunity and this actually could be in some way a good thing? It,
2: to an extent that this doesn't have to be a devastating crisis. On the one hand, some of this is coming from a good thing, which is that global life expectancy is rising. People are living many more years than they previously have done. So if you put effort into some of those underlying structural issues like affordable health care, if you help people to stay healthier for longer, then it doesn't necessarily mean that an older population will necessarily need a great deal more healthcare than the current proportion. But the problem is that this will it would require a shift in mindset. So you look at the protests happening and the strike across France on raising pension age, that would be one of the things that we would have to change. We would have to shift towards a model of expecting to work longer and we'd have to put really serious efforts into keeping the population healthier for longer so there there is a way that this could not be a disaster but again there's very little political will to tackle that there could be movement for instance One of the things that Japan is very poor on um, is openness to to immigration. So I think at a time when immigration is politically demonized, it would be helpful for politicians to be more more open and more realistic about actually the benefits of, of immigration, particularly for those of our societies that are aging much more rapidly. But there doesn't seem to be the political will to tackle it and to talk about these subjects more openly. Yeah, I think you're really right to
4: compare it to the climate change debate, just because it does seem like there are v- some very tangible solutions, but there are some political roadblocks and mindsets that just can't really seem to be overridden to get there. For or at you. least I
2: think there's a disconnect. We can understand the problem, but then when it comes to the action, I'm speaking from the United States where often parents have no parental leave and people's access to healthcare is tied to their jobs. I think societies like the US are this contradiction that on the one hand, there's an a enormous passion around the, the pro-life wing of the Republican Party, for instance, but that doesn't seem to translate into then action to support working parents and to to make it possible for people to, to have more children. So I think it, it's not unlike climate change. This is one of these issues that, it, you know, the science is actually not all that complicated. It's the political and the societal changes that would need to happen that seem to be the the real roadblock
4: wherever you are in the world if you're interested in global affairs you can subscribe to the new statesman in digital in print or both from as little as one pound a week that's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds that's one euro a week in europe and just two dollars a week in america just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer
5: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
4: Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time to hear from you with a section we like to call You Ask Us. A listener asks, Boris Johnson has said that Putin threatened him with a missile strike ahead of the war in Ukraine. Is he for real? Katie, as this is a subject you have also written about this week, and I know you have lots of thoughts on,
2: what is this really about So for anyone who may not have heard Boris Johnson's extraordinary brush with death, he relates this in a new BBC documentary, which to be fair, I will say I have only heard the clip that was released. I have not heard the full interview. But Boris says when he's talking about a conversation with Vladimir Putin roughly three weeks before the start of Russia's war against Ukraine, he threatened me at one point. He said, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but with a missile, it would only take a minute. And then he stops and sort of half smiles to himself and says, jolly. So there are two issues here. The first is, did Vladimir Putin actually say this? The Kremlin says uh, he did not. The spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, has said that either Boris Johnson is lying or he misunderstood what was being said. Peskov says that Putin did say that he was talking about what would happen if Ukraine joined NATO and missiles were deployed near the Russian border. In that case, it would only take minutes for those missiles to reach Moscow. So he's suggesting that Boris may have understood what Vladimir Putin was saying. Nevertheless, the Kremlin does have a very strong track record of lying. So we don't want to necessarily take Peskov at face value. So giving Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt, if Vladimir Putin really did say this, what bothered me about this was that he seems to have fundamentally misunderstood what was being said. If Vladimir Putin threatened to kill Boris Johnson with a missile as the serving prime minister of Britain. He was not just threatening to bump off Boris Johnson, he was threatening to start World War III. A Russian missile attack against anyone in the UK would be an extraordinarily serious event. It would be an attack on a nuclear power in its own right, an attack on a NATO member, which could bring all 30 member states into a war against Russia. So if that is genuinely what was said, then the message to take from that was that Putin was threatening to strike the UK and to start a much broader war. In which case, this certainly seems like something Boris Johnson should have mentioned to the British public at the time. But I think it speaks to what, Megan, you put me on to the right terminology being main character syndrome, Boris Johnson's continual and remarkable ability to put himself at the center of events and to foreground himself. And what he clearly wanted, the way he told the story, wanted to show how he'd been so cool under pressure. He'd been so brave. He wasn't intimidated by Putin at all. But that is not what was happening, if indeed Putin even did say that. So that that is what caused me to, to write about it. And in terms of the is he for real question, hopefully, there's a good transcript of that call, and in time, the archives will open and we will get the full record of what Vladimir Putin did and did not say to Boris Johnson.
4: I will just note here that the UK's readout of that call from the UK side had no hint of any kind of threat of imminent World War III, so for what that's worth
2: thanks to all of you who sent in your questions listeners you can send yours in at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or by tweeting at us that's all we have time for today join us monday for our
4: interview episode where i speak with sociologist and author neil gross on another tragic killing of a black man by police in the u.s what if anything can be done to reform american police forces If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please do so. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a very good review. It really does help. Thank you to Alona for joining us today and our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's
5: yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too.